find myself famous. Famous? For what? For Child Harold, the gloomy little ponce. Murray published it. And it sold? It sold out. In three days, one is very much in demand. The tyranny of pleasure and of pain. They make us what we were not, what they will, and shake us with the vision that's gone by. The dread of vanished shadows, are they so? Is not the past all shadow? What are they? Creations of the mind? The mind can make substances and people planets of its own, with beings brighter than have been, and give a breath to forms which can outlive all flesh. I would recall a vision which I dreamed, perchance in sleep, for in itself a thought, a slumbering thought, is capable of years and curdles a long life into one hour. Hello, my name's Colin Waters. I guess I'm going to say I'm a writer and an editor. And my name is Adam O'Davis. I'm a poet, photographer, and teacher. And my debut collection came out last year from Saraband Books. Now, as tradition dictates, uh, I'm going to tell you what the poem was that I read at the start. It's The Dream by Lord Byron. Now, Byron died a good half century before the invention of the cinema. But I think you can hear in his lines there, those ones about beings brighter than have been and forms which can outlive all flesh. You can hear in those an echo of the art form to come that would dominate the following century. And doesn't that closing line, which talks about a vision which curdles a long life into one hour, isn't that reminiscent of what biopics do? Now hold on to that thought. So this week we're rounding off our first season of Poetry Goes to the Movies with a special episode. Over the past five installments, we've tried to persuade you that the world's most expensive art form and the world's cheapest art form have more in common than you'd think. We began by looking at poets who've made films before moving on to look at how blockbusters of the 80s, 90s and 2000s could illuminate classic poetry themes or how poets themselves often behave. So we use John Woo's action film Face Off to look at identity and masks. And we use David Fincher's Zodiac to explore the question of poems as codes that require cracking. Poltergeist illustrated the ways in which poetry's past haunts its present, while Groundhog Day had something to say about the business of drafting and redrafting and redrafting. In this, our final episode of our first season, we're going to have a little fun and look at that rarest of things, poets who've had films made about them. Adam and I have chosen two distinct poets or, or groups of poets who have appeared on screen, perhaps more than most poets could ever hope to. In my case, I'm looking at a poet who lived a life that was the very definition of notoriety, a man who in many ways prefigures the concerns of our times. Uh, although the question remains, was he a political and sexual radical shaking up his era? Or was he in fact a toxic male who built his bad boy image off the backs of the women he exploited? I am referring, of course, to George Gordon, a.k.a. Lord Byron. Ah, yes. Infamous. And as for my choice, uh, who else besides Emily Dickinson has inspired so many films other than those post-World War II angel-headed hipsters all bent out of shape on Benzedrine, those mad ones, mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, and desirous of everything at the same time who never yawned but burned like fabulous yellow Roman candles and ate their lunch naked under the starry dynamo and the machinery of night. I am, of course, talking about those progenitors of free verse, ecstasy, and excess, the Beats. And our guest, Ruben Quesada, talks Terence Malick 
and Pedro Almodovar. So, Colin, why Byron? The simple answer is that there's quite a few films about Byron, um, either directly about Byron or in which Byron has more than a walk-on part. And the life he had, it's not surprising. Um, If you don't know that much about Byron, and I must admit, I thought I knew the main aspects of Byron's life, Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, even a quick look at his Wikipedia page shows that there's so many incidents from his life and um, so many of them have been turned into films. I'll I'll start by saying that Byron was born in 1788 in London. He was the son of an infamous seaman. In fact, his whole family was quite infamous, actually. Hmm. His dad led a dissipated life and frittered away his wife's fortune. uh, And his dad died when he was three. But more significantly, uh, the death of his uncle, uh, which occurred when he was 10. That's more significant because his uncle was childless and he inherited his uncle's baronetcy. That's why he's a lord. Hmm. Uh, Byron was a sporty youth in spite of, or, or perhaps, in fact, because of being lame in one foot. He was a sexual prodigy and was to enjoy in his first years, in fact, as he did throughout his life, liaisons with men and women. In 1809, so I guess that would be when he was 21, he made his first significant journey abroad, travelling to Portugal, Spain, Greece and Turkey. That was his version of the, the grand tour that the, hmm. the early Victorians were fond of. Yeah. Um, these journeys inspired his first great success, a long poem, a longish poem called Child Harold's Pilgrimage. Byron famously said uh, of his success that he went to bed in unknown and woke up famous. And in several of the films that I watched, they managed to get him to say that or the actor playing him. So that's something to think about. He was the toast of Regency London. I know it's a cliche, but he was kind of like the rock star of his day. He was like the Mick Jagger of his day. I know, that's a terrible cliche, but it gives you an idea of the sort of status he had in Regency London. And yeah. He held that position for several years. What brought him down, though, were the gossip, the stories about his proclivities, particularly a rumoured affair with a half-sister. And let us not forget, he had very radical political views for the time, and he'd also racked up quite a bit of debt. And these three things together persuaded Byron he better leave England uh, in 1816, which he did, never to return. Now, that same year, 1816, he was visited at Villa Diodati on Lake Geneva by uh, Percy and Mary Shelley. And this is the the night of nights when Mm -hmm. it comes to poetry, uh, or indeed literature, because it is... um, during one of the, the nights during the stay, um, Byron challenged each of his guests. Uh, there was um, Byron himself, Percy Shelley, Mary Shelley, uh, Mary Shelley's half-sister, uh, Claire Claremont, and um, Byron's doctor, Dr. Polidori. They're all staying there at Villa Diodati. And Byron challenges them all to write a, a ghost story. Uh, the only two who really do it significantly are, are Polidori, who writes The Vampire, which is credited as being one of the early vampire stories. And uh, Mary Shelley, who you might have heard of the novel she wrote called Frankenstein. I don't know. It's kind of an obscure one. But, uh, I, uh, I teach it every year, actually. So. <laughs> yeah. oh, maybe I should hand it over to you at this point. Okay. <laughs> no, please, no. There, there's been many films or parts of films. In fact, I'm going to be talking about one later in, in the show. After that, you know, um, Byron continued living in Italy until 1823 when he left to go to Greece, where he went to fight on the Greek side in the War of Independence from the Ottoman Empire. He died at this point, and not in battle, he died from blood poisoning. And, you know, with a life like that, and that, that is really the briefest of skins, you know, how could he not end up being the subject of many films? That's a, that's a great point. I mean, you know, the, the question, though, is there were so many. Which ones did you, uh, which ones did you pick? 
Well, I've, I've got a sort of small smorgasbord. Can you have a small smorgasbord? <laughs> yeah, I think you can have a small one. I've got a small smorgasbord. A tiny bounty, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I should say, actually, before I say which ones, um, I want to note that it, although, you know, many films have been made about Byron, none of them are, are particularly good. Um, they're interesting. <laughs> There's never been any great Byron mm-hmm. films. <laughs> Not even any good Byron films. But oh. anyway, here's the films I watched. So the first one I watched was The Bad Lord Byron, which is a biopic directed by David MacDonald in 1949. Uh-huh. I watched Lady Caroline Lamb, which was written and directed by Robert Bolt in 1972. That's the same Robert Bolt who did A Man for All Seasons, and this is the only film he directed. Okay. I watched Gothic, which is a very lurid reimagining of um, That Night at the Villa Diodati, um, and it was, it was directed by the simply incorrigible Ken Russell in 1986. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I also fitted in a two and a half hour film the BBC made in 2003 called Simply Byron. Now the actors playing Byron in all these films, Dennis Price played the poet in Bad Lord Byron, Richard Chamberlain, Dr. Kildare himself is Byron and Lady Caroline Lamb. Gabriel Byrne does the honours in Gothic and in, in the BBC film it's Johnny Lee Miller who plays Byron. So uh-huh. I feel I've yanked enough about Byron here. Adam, why did you choose the beats? I mean, I just want to say first that my my own input uh, or intake rather of cinema here pales in comparison to yours. You had a solid 12 hours of Byron, it sounds like. That, that's uh, that's impressive. <laughs> and you've lived to tell the tale. <laughs> well, you know, in terms of the beats, it, it's hard to think of a literary movement that has better captured the public's and thereby cinema's imagination than that of the beats. So much so that it often seems that the movement the notion of which its principal actors have been largely disdainful. Ginsburg famously said, we were just a bunch of guys trying to get published, has eclipsed the literature. This is largely due to the hijinks, which might be too loose a word they were involved in. Murder, sex, theft, jail time, you name it, they did it, which makes their literary output, though scattershot in both realization and presentation, somewhat heroic. I mean, the question I keep asking myself is, how did they find time to write when they were so busy self-destructing? I think... Part of their celluloid popularity is explained by the place we reserve in popular imagination for those live fast, die young types. In this case, think a gang of James Deans armed with a dozen typewriters. In short, the majority of the Beats lived lives that mesh well with film's beautiful tragedy genre. Kerouac died of alcoholism at 47, embittered by the hippie movement that Ginsburg embraced. Neil Cassidy, ringleader and champion of the Beats, died at 41 near a set of railroad tracks in Mexico after several lifetimes worth of misadventure. Burroughs shot his common law wife in the head during a drunken game of William Tell. Lucian Carr went to jail after stabbing an alleged stalker to death. And really only Gary Snyder, the more sage and Zen focused of them, is still alive this day. Well, a bunch. Um, now I would say I would say that both Byron and the Beats, especially Ginsburg, Mm-hmm. They had a lot in common. Um, they, they cultivated that outlaw image, didn't they? They were yeah. users of drugs. Their sexualities were a source of legal jeopardy. And they've also had several bad films made about each other. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's all true. I mean, they should have had uh, Mama Tried tattoos on their biceps. You know, they, they, uh, I, I think it's the sensational nature of their lives that makes them catnip to literary-minded filmmakers. We almost forgive the crimes, or at least tolerate them because they were able to produce valuable work that has lasted. I think this also raises uncomfortable questions about the permission we'll give to quote unquote talented individuals who behave badly, both in real life and in cinema. Um, Though the films may ultimately condemn the characters for their actions, 
the reality is that cinema is a medium that glorifies that which it depicts. As Francois Truffaut once explained, there's no such thing as an anti-war film or as Quentin Tarantino said more bluntly, violence is one of the worst aspects of America, but in movies, violence is cool. I like it. Thanks, Quentin. Uh, that said, neither of them have offered an answer as to how cinema might make writing look exciting. Indeed, that's a tall order to film, meaning that films about writers do everything they can to focus on things other than writing, hence the need for scandal. I noticed while watching these films, um, if you take Bad Lord Byron, Lady Caroline Lamb, and the BBC oh. biopic, for example, each one starts with Byron either boxing in some sort of martial context. Uh, it's almost as if they're saying, don't worry about him being a poet. <laughs> There's going to be some fighting too and, you know, chasing chasing after lovers, you know. There right. be a bit of poetry, but yeah, not too much. I mean, yeah. Gothic is different for reasons I'll return to, but I wanted to ask Adam, how well did the films you watched handle the very thing that put these characters on the map in the first place? In other <sighs> words, the poetry. Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, despite James Franco's abysmal, truly abysmal record when it comes to literary-minded cinema, I would not wish his adaptations of Faulkner on on anyone with eyes. Um, I thought Howell did a great job of presenting the multifaceted and multivocalic nature of Ginsburg's poem. The combination of poetry reading, interview, pseudo documentary, animation, and courtroom drama was inspired. And as a result, the film worked both as a long form bit of poetic analysis, as well as a poem itself in the sense that it couldn't be contained to one style or genre. However, the film is more concerned, like many readers, with the presentation of the poem rather than its creation. Uh, the obscenity trial is the film's true heart, and the courtroom scenes contain an Aaron Sorkin-like panache as the defense and prosecution go toe-to-toe -to -toe with English professors over the question of what constitutes literature. On the other hand, Kill Your Darlings focused a bit more on the actual writing process, though, as ever with Hollywood, it had to be presented in Rocky Balboa-like montages. You know, Ginsburg, reckless on speed, banging away on the typewriter or himself. Uh, Ginsburg and Carr chopping up classic books at Burroughs' request and pinning scraps to the to camera's wall. Uh, Ginsburg and Carr circling each other in a dimly lit room as they shout out what they want their writing to be. It's all fun enough, but it doesn't really get to the heart of the writing life, which is decidedly unsexy and difficult to film. It's a person all alone in a room wrestling with words. So what did you make of uh, the people who are playing the, the writers in the films you watched? So that would be in how, as you mentioned, James Franco plays Alan Ginsberg. And um, equally unlikely, um, Ginsberg is played by Harry Potter, Daniel Radcliffe and Kill Your Darlings. Did they get under Ginsberg's skin, do you think? I think they did. I, you know, I enjoyed both performances. Uh, obviously, they're they're they have different physical they're different physical types. But uh, you know, Franco, I think, had the easier job as he could play a post Howell Ginsburg, meaning that there was plenty of interviews and recordings to study and draw from. Um, you know, his task was mimicry, while Radcliffe, I think, had maybe the more difficult uh, or thankless job of playing a, a pre fame Ginsburg, all angst and hope and repressed desire, along with a, a touch of, or substantial touch of innocence, you know, without really a sense of the wry, bald and bearded bard Ginsburg would eventually become. I guess that's as good a moment as any to actually maybe hear some poetry by uh, the aff aforementioned Ginsburg. Absolutely. And I, uh, I, I hate to be so predictable, but uh, given the focus, I think we're going to have to read part of Howell. And I'll just read an excerpt from the beginning of it. It's Howell by Alan Ginsburg. 
I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix. Angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night. Who poverty and tatters and hollow-eyed and high sat up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold water flats, floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz. Who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated. Who passed through universities with radiant, cool eyes, hallucinating Arkansas and Blake light tragedy among the scholars of war who were expelled from the academies for crazy and publishing obscene odes on the windows of the skull, who cowered in unshaven rooms in underwear, burning their money in waste baskets and listening to the terror through the wall, who got busted in their pubic beards, returning through Laredo with a belt of marijuana for New York, who ate fire in paint hotels or drank turpentine in Paradise Alley, death or purgatoried their torsos night after night with dreams, with drugs, with waking nightmares, alcohol and cock and endless balls, incomparable blind streets of shuddering cloud and lightning in the mind leaping toward poles of Canada and Patterson, illuminating all the motionless world of time between. Peyote solidities of halls, backyard green tree, cemetery dawns, wine, drunkenness over the rooftops, storefront burrows of tea head, joyride, neon, blinking traffic light, sun and moon and tree vibrations in the roaring winter dusks of Brooklyn, ashcan rantings and kind king light of mind who chain themselves to subways for the endless ride from Battery to Holy Bronx on Benzedrine until the noise of wheels and children brought them down, shuddering, mouth-racked and battered bleak of brain, all drained of brilliance in the drear light of zoo, who sank all night in submarine light of Bickford's floated out and sat through the stale beer afternoon in desolate fugazis, listening to the crack of doom on the hydrogen jukebox. And Dr. Hicks kept saying, what do you want to do? What is your heart's desire? So finally I said, well, what I'd really like to do is to just quit all this and get a small room with Peter and devote myself to my writing, contemplation and fucking and smoking pot and doing whatever I wanted. And he said, why don't you do it then? Well, Adam, I fear that one of the fatal flaws when it comes to making films about poets is um, actors. By which I mean to say, no, no offense to actors. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, what's with actors anyway? <laughs> yeah, what is with actors? Um, what I mean is, just because the whole sort of tendency of of the, the mainstream um, cinema industry is to, to cast handsome people good looking people i mean you know i just i don't want to be rude about ginsburg but i mean james frank was you know ludicrously better looking than ginsburg <laughs> I mean, 
it's it's just i mean they don't they don't even remote i mean quite often actors don't really look if they're in a biopic they don't really look like the person they use some makeup and lighting to make them look like it but franco looks nothing nothing like ginsburg it kind of undermines it a little bit for me and it's the same with the byron films um what another thing that really i don't know maybe i'm the only person that that feels this way but it sticks in my craw that they have actors who are obviously much older than the parts that they're playing Mm -hmm. so you know dennis price who played byron in the bad lord byron you know he's 34 and that that was the age i think byron was when he died but i mean in the early scenes when he's in his like look he's 21 when he became famous i think um It's ridiculous. He looks nothing like a 21-year-old. Gabriel Byrne, he was closer to the age, I think. He was about 36. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was about the age. Uh, Byron was a few years younger, so I can forgive Gabriel Byrne. But, uh, but Jerry Lee Miller was 31, and at one point he's meant to be like Byron as a teenager, you know, in his very late teens. And to me, it just, uh, I don't know, it undermines it all a bit, you know. So the BBC version with Johnny Miller is like an adaptation of uh, Byron's Wikipedia entry. It's got so many sort of, you know, it's like they had a checklist of things that they had to get into the film, you know, like yeah. get get into the film about how he um, was famous overnight. Get into the film how he had an affair with Lady Caroline Lamb. Remember and mention that um, his wife was actually um, uh, almost... Um, was like a, a mathematician and he called her the princess of parallelograms and and this is a nod towards the fact that his daughter it was ada lovelace who basically invented computers you know i was always like get these bits and get these bits. to the extent it sort of deformed the film the film couldn't be a film it had to become mm. as i say like an adaptation of a wikipedia entry now, what yeah. i haven't i haven't seen um i will have seen hell that's been a while since i've seen it but, uh, but i haven't yeah. seen kill your darlings yeah. but i think I think they might um, avoid the whole sort of sweep of life biopic issue because they cover shorter periods, don't they? They do, I, and I think that's the only way to, to to handle you know the Wikipedia entry issue because clearly, if you're going to make a film about Ginsburg, you know you, you've got seventy plus years to cover right there. So, I think the filmmakers are smart to cover you know the obscenity trial or the uh, the murder of David Cameron by Lucien Carr, like these these small week to month long periods of these writers' lives. And, and because of that, there was relatively little aging needed. A still Harry Potter-esque 24-year-old Radcliffe played an 18-year-old Ginsburg, while a 32-year-old Franco played a 31-year-old Ginsburg. So they're, they're relatively close in, in age there. You know, I can't help but think of, you know, how many high schoolers Michael J. Fox played into his 30s and 40s, uh, or, or, or the way that I personally was haunted by this notion, uh, having watched Beverly Hills 90210 as a kid, that seniors in high school look like full-grown 28-year-old men. There's a, there, there, there's a thing about that in, in cinema. But, you know, to your point about Byron, I'm willing to cut the filmmakers a little slack owing to the huge advances we've made in moisturizers and sunscreen since the 18th century. Uh, I mean, kind of you. You know, I, I, I just, I wonder, you know, Byron is, as most people of his age, likely looked much older than, than they would now. Or at least that's what I like to tell myself every morning when I look in the mirror. I have to say, Adam, one of the things I have noticed about each of these adaptations and um, adaptations of their lives is that, and this is a common observation when it comes to historical movies, is that mm-hmm. the characters' hairstyles reflect the era the film was made in, not the era it's set in. 
Because Byron is so distinctive, his hair is faithfully depicted. Although Chamberlain, you should see this. I mean, Google this, right? Richard yeah. Chamberlain has this extraordinary pair of pointed sideburns when he's playing Byron and Lady Caroline Lamb. Uh, but the rest of them are okay, you know, in terms of hair. But it's not so much Byron the hairstyles I noticed in. It's, um, so, for example, um, if you look at the character Lady Caroline Lamb, I should maybe explain who Caroline Lamb was. Um, she was Byron's lover um, for a period. It's a question of who exploited who really with, with Caroline Lamb. You know, she's you could some people might say she was a bit of a groupie and she she approached Byron because she was you know, he's very famous and she wanted to bask in his reflected glory. You could also say that she obviously had mental health issues and that Byron mm. maybe exploited her. She certainly acted like a terrible stalker after Byron tried to finish the, the relationship with her. Anyway, in, in Bad Lord Byron, um, Joan Greenwood, who plays uh, Lamb, um, she's like a debutante with beautiful long hair. And Sarah Miles, who plays Caroline Lamb in Lady Caroline Lamb, she has this shortish, roughly styled coiffure that has an element of a, a page boy cut. And, hmm. and in the BBC version, Camilla Power, that's that actor who plays um, Lamb in that one, she has this weird stringy hipster cut. You know, I was watching it and going, nobody had a haircut like that in <laughs> the early, the first decade of the 19th century, did they? Well, maybe they did, oh, I don't know. It was a few decades, I think, till the whole flapper revolution caught up with us. Quite a few after that, yeah. yeah but it was, it was, I mean, I, I guess if you're rich, you know, in that period, you can do what the hell you like, you know. And 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 the stories reveal, you know, that Byron and his friends really did, you know, get away with a lot that other people in that time didn't do. So it's worth remembering that when we're heroizing Byron, you know, he, hmm. because of his birth and because of his money, you know, was insulated in a way that, you know, say a working class bisexual uh, would, wouldn't have um, been tolerated. Right. So, um, more seriously than the haircuts, I mean, I only really mention the haircuts to be slightly frivolous, but you can see the attitudes of the times they were made, encoded in the films. You know, so it's been 18 years since the last Byron biopic. And, you know, I doubt whether in this current climate, you know, any filmmaker would be as kind or forgiving towards Byron um, as past filmmakers have been, particularly given the way he treat the women in his life. Um, so as I say, you know, Caroline Lamb, she, she really... I feel that would be a very problematic aspect for filmmakers to deal with, you know, mm -hmm. but also fascinating too, you know, because she, there's elements of cross-dressing. She used to dress up as a page boy <laughs> to, to get into Byron. When Byron banished her from his, from his, you know, presence, mm -hmm. she would dress up as a page boy and, and deliver a message, much like Bugs Bunny, you know, used to do, you know, telegram for Byron. Uh, oh God, it's you again. It's a really interesting thing, you know. Did Byron have the worst time of it, or did Lady Caroline Lamb have the worst of it, you know? And and the films basically are on Byron's side, and I wonder if that would be the case today, actually. Mm. I want to actually, while well, I've got the chance, read a very quick, a very short poem by Byron. Mm. Um, one of these times when Lady Caroline Lamb effectively broke into his house, she wrote um, on the flyleaf of a book, Remember Me, which inspired a short poem by Byron, um, which I'm going to try and read in the the spirit in which it was written. Remember thee, remember thee, till Leith quench life's burning stream, remorse and shame shall cling to thee, and haunt thee like a feverish dream. Remember thee, I doubt it not, thy husband too shall think of thee, by neither shall thou be forgot, thou false to him, thou fiend to me. So, I mean, that that's a poem of exasperation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I should mention as well, I mean, 
small world or what, um, Lady Caroline Lamb was married to um, Viscount Lamb, who went on to become Prime Minister later in the century. So, you know, it's a small world, you know. It's a, these people, they all knew each other. You know, they knew Duke of Wellington. Lady Caroline Lamb had, a, yeah. had a, I think, a, a very brief um, affair with, um, with the Duke of Wellington, which leads to the sort of impression that some people had that she was, and I hate this word, I'm really sorry to you cover your ears up, but it is an offensive word, but people did think she was a bit of a star fucker. Hmm. So it's interesting to see, I would be really interested to see A, how a modern filmmaker would cover Byron's life, and I'd be really interested to see how a woman, a, a woman filmmaker would, would, would cover his life, you know, because yeah. I think the men have, have had the run of, mm-hmm. of uh, interpretations of Byron's life. Yeah. How how about Howl and Kill Your Darlings, Adam? Are there are there elements in there that seem to be more about addressing the present than than faithfully depicting the past? You know, it's interesting. I mean, to your point about Caroline Lamb, um, Kill Your Darlings. I mean, the conceit of Kill Your Darlings is affected that Lucien Carr is this uh, kind of um, very charismatic um, student at Columbia when he meets Ginsburg, and Ginsburg falls in her spell. But Carr himself has. Uh, has this older professor or rather this older individual who used to be a professor. He quit to be, uh, he quit being a professor so they could follow Carr around the country. And this is David Kammerer. Um, and the, the conceit, uh, at least uh, the historical conceit is that according to Carr, Kammerer was a stalker and that's eventually why he stabbed him to death, that he did so in self-defense. The film made Carr such a deeply unsympathetic character that I had a hard time accepting uh, the uh, the self defense notion of this crime. Um, you know, Cameron is a, a pitiable figure in here, rather than the aggressive stalker he was claimed to be. And while there's no doubt that his relationship with Carr was deeply obsessive and problematic, again, I just didn't like Carr very much. Uh, and that's saying something when you're in a film or when you're a character in a film that also features Burroughs who Roger Ebert called one of the most pathetic figures in modern literature. It was difficult for me to look at this as, as anything other than a cold-blooded killing in the way it was eventually depicted, because it does indeed show Carr then drowning Cameron in the Hudson River uh, because he had not finished the job with his pocket knife. On a personal note, I'll just say that the, the film struck me. Uh, I went to Columbia when studying poetry, uh, as the, the the beats in this film did, and I spent many a night in the West End bar plotting my literary future, as they did. But what I really found in this film, that it, it acts as a, a, a primer for the characters you might encounter in a graduate writing program. You know, the archetypes are all there. You've got the brilliant but doomed person, the brilliant but shy person, the lovelorn and lost, the not brilliant and loud, self-destructive yet charming. Uh, the list goes on and on, and I found myself experiencing flashbacks to almost 20 years ago. All that said, it was heartening to see young writers imagining how their work might change the world rather than young stockbrokers trying to see how much cocaine they can expense as they destroy their clients' life savings. What Hal raised, unsurprisingly, was censorship, the question of which I think is more prevalent in social media circles these days than in literature. Uh, It's hard to think of what we might construe as obscene these days with the written word as it pertains to books, perhaps because the immediacy of digital culture allows more direct and intimate conduit to offense, which is both empowering and strangely short-lived. In the film, I, teacher that I am, found the courtroom scenes powerful in that there was a host of intelligent people arguing over the merits of literature and ultimately siding with Ginsburg, Ferlinghetti, and company as to what literature can be. 
from our contemporary perspective, it's easy enough for us to find them on the right side of history. But it also got me thinking about what blind spots I or anyone else might have in the present. Uh, certainty, I suppose, is doubt plus time. Taking on uh, page 13, the 14th line. Who howled on their knees in the subway and were dragged off the roof waving genitals and manuscripts. Now, do you understand what that paragraph is trying to say as part of the howl? Not explicitly. I would say he was attempting to show the lack of inhibition in the persons he's talking of, the post-World War II generation. Those who returned went into college or went into work immediately after World War II, perhaps were somewhat displaced by the chaos of the war and didn't immediately settle down. Now the, um, the next paragraph. Uh, who blew and were blown by those human seraphim, the sailors, caresses of Atlantic and Caribbean love. Uh, now, you understand what uh, blue and blown uh, mean. Well, I, th I think they're words that have several meanings. What meanings do you attribute to the words in this paragraph? I mean, I think that, as well with the Byron films, would have been a really interesting um, aspect to explore, you know, because uh, Byron himself um, wrote in a time in which um, free speech was curtailed it's interesting to think of these poets in that light. However, what happens in all the films I watch with Byron, his politics are kind of just a sort of um, sorry, a lens to look at his life through rather than, than yeah. something to explore. So it's like, oh, look at this. He was into radical politics. Doesn't that make you like him? <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, yeah. I need to think about that. Exactly. That is, you know, taking something that I find really interesting and, and would like to see more of and, and making it really embarrassing and naff, you know. Uh, and there's a lot of that in the Byron films. As I said earlier on, they all really cornly conspire to have, apart from Gothic, they all cornly conspire to have a moment in which Byron talked about going to bed you know, and waking up famous, and mm -hmm. they also had Caroline Lamb say that he was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. She she's popularly credited with having coming up with having come up with that term, but yeah. it's just naff, you know. Is there anything like that in Kill Your Darlings and Howl? Thankfully, no. I mean, no one in, in Howl at least ever said it's time to howl, and then you know started howling. Although there was a shot in Howl of Ginsburg and his partner uh, Peter Olovsky howling from the rooftops, but it was tasteful, I thought, and contextually appropriate. Whoever was in charge of casting Jack Kerouac in Kill Your Darlings should be seriously questioned. Uh, the, the man looked nothing and sounded nothing like him, so much so that I spent a good portion of the film trying to reconcile my understanding of him with the films. It was uh, it was this weird experience of like cinematic imposter syndrome. I, I, I couldn't even understand how the other characters could look at this person and say, oh, you're Jack. It, it wasn't happening for me. It's, it's interesting because uh, none of the hmm, none of the actors really looked terribly like the portraits that we have of Byron. And, right. and one of the things, that, I mean, look, Johnny Lee Miller is just you know extremely <laughs> handsome guy, you know. Uh, I, and and uh, one of the things that they didn't any of the films didn't do, uh, they did practically everything else. But I mean, there was periods where I think Byron was a bit of a, a yo-yoer when it came to his weight. He had periods where he was he was fat mm. and you know, yeah. thin again. 
they didn't cover that. Nobody was willing to, you know, do the De Niro thing and uh, get fat and, or, or wear a fat suit, which I believe is a bit on PC these days. I don't know. I can't keep up with all these social media outrages. Like you said, Adam, they're curiously short-lived, but there's a lot of them. Um, so when it comes to Byron, I'm going to just bend your ear, ear here now because this yeah. is a sort of pet peeve of mine and uh, I'm never going to get another chance to go on about it um, if I don't do it here. So what is your pet peeve, Colin? Well, I'll tell you. Um, born in London, Byron's mother soon took herself and her infant son back to Scotland, to Aberdeen. Why am I mentioning that? Because Byron was essentially Scottish. Yes, you know, his um, dad wasn't, but his, his mother was from, as I say, Aberdeen and... Mm-hmm. Uh, his whole sorry, mother's side of the family were Scottish. Um, indeed, his maternal grandfather was said to be a descendant of James I of Scotland. He lived in Aberdeen for the first 10 years of his life. And um, I have read, I don't know if I even I agree with this, but why not go with it? I've read that some of his rhymes don't really work unless you, you speak them in a Scottish accent. Hmm. Um, Byron himself had a very complex relationship with his Scottish inheritance. None of this is in the films, but I'll come back to that. <clears throat> he had a very... Um, complex relationship with that that sort of Scottish legacy. Uh, in his youth and early adulthood, he appears to have dismissed it with scorn. And if you've ever read um, is it, um, English Bards and Scotch Reviewers, an early poem, uh, he wrote after getting a bad review in Blackwoods, which was um, the famous you know Scottish literary magazine of its day. Um, he seems to have reacted badly towards anyone suggesting he might have had a bit of a Scottish legacy himself. And also had issues with his mother. He didn't really get on with his mum. And he used to take the mick out of the fact she was quite fat, which is ironic given that he got a bit fat. I find this is really interesting, that later in his life, when he felt rejected by England because of his sexuality and his politics, he came back to embracing his Scottish identity. And um, he almost seemed to see that as a way, as a sort of counterweight to an English identity, which he had started to associate with things that he was opposed to. If you read Don Dewan, uh, which is my favourite Byron poem, I mean, it's a mega poem, but I, I love it. Um, mm-hmm. It's got some of my favourite lines by any poet, um, mainly because it flatters my sense of Scottishness. But um, here's what he writes. I am half a Scot by birth and bred a whole one, and my heart flies to my head as Auld Lang Syne brings Scotland one and all Scotch plaids, Scotch snoods, the blue hills and clear streams, the Dee, the Don, Balgunies, Briggs, Blackwall, all my boy feelings. It suggests to me that it was, you know, despite his, er- his early sort of part of his career, that it, this was Scottishness was deeply rooted in him. Irritatingly, irritating. None of these damn films even mentions that he's Scottish. There's a bit in um, the um, BBC 2003 Byron film where he, he says that his family were the damned of Aberdeen. Mm, and okay. that's it. That is the only Scottish hint in all these 12 hours of um, Scottish films that I've watched. And, you know, I've watched I've watched other Byron films in the past as well. Um, mm-hmm. If you want to talk about ridiculous casting, uh, there's a sort of Spanish, Anglo-Spanish film about Byron and um, Shelley called Rowing with the Wind, which has, wait for it, Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant, the most oh, English yeah. Englishman, is Byron. Yeah. I mean, you know, sure. uh, I, 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 I don't mind him as an actor. I quite like him, actually. But no, oh. he's not He's not Byron by any stretch. And, you know, I think the closest we get to a Kelt in the part is Gabriel Byrne in Gothic. But that that's it. That's it. There's no... <laughs> There's no other Scottishness acknowledged in the films. Again, Scotland is robbed. What can I say? You know, we'll just have to hold on to Burns, I guess. And then, uh... but, I mean, we, we we were chatting by email earlier, and you know, if you want to talk about 
inauthenticness. I mean, mm-hmm. it's the fate of Ginsburg and Burroughs, etc. as their careers went on, isn't there? Kerouac, uh, you know, became somewhat of a pitiable character, you know, dying fairly young and also coming out in support of the Vietnam War and becoming a real kind of conservative force on American talk shows. And yet, you know, his his reputation was was kind of protected in a sense by the fact that he did not live on another 30 years to become an even crazier right winger. Whereas, you know, Ginsburg and Burroughs certainly by no stretch uh, or no means were they uh, conservatives, but they lived so long that uh, sometimes that might have uh, worked against them, at least in the sense that I remember from uh, from the 90s when there was this kind of resurgence of interest in the beats that when U2 came out with their pop album, they enlisted Burroughs in the music video for Last Night on Earth, where he's this old man, because he's old, um, pushing a searchlight around in a shopping cart on a Kansas City freeway for no particular reason. And then even worse, and, and perhaps most insultingly, some of the last filmed footage of Ginsburg features him reciting the lyrics to Bono's uh, song Miami. Uh, and in watching this, you can't tell uh, whether this was like a hostage situation or what was going on. But to, to think that this was the last thing that uh, he may have been recorded doing is a little depressing in that sense. Yeah. I mean, Ginsburg had a weakness for, for rock stars, didn't he? He did, yeah. I, I, I'm thinking of um, epic, an epically boring um, pseudo documentary, Ronaldo and Clara by Bob Dylan. Directed yes. by Bob Dylan and, yes. and by Dylan and Sam Shepard. There's one one ele- one part of the film where Dylan and Ginsburg go to Kerouac's grave. Yeah. And that's actually one of the more interesting parts. You can find it on YouTube. You know, yeah. but uh, he just uh, something about music uh, and film, I think, and music and film together that really attracted Ginsburg. My my research for this part of the film was to watch um, Pull My Daisy, which mm. is a 1959 short film, yeah. uh, which features. Ginsburg, um, he's got no story as such. He just him and um, is it Corso Gregory Corso? They turn up at a friend's house. They drink beer. They smoke weed. Uh, the friend comes back from his job. They start playing jazz music and all over this. Uh, Kerouac's doing a sort of beboppy um, mm-hmm. beat style kind of narration. And yeah. it's about it's twenty three minutes. You can find it on YouTube. Um, it's 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 not great, but it's not bad. It's worth a watch. But it does it does say you know that. Um, you know, um, Ginsburg, I guess, prefigured these film versions of his life because he was already very intimate with, with cinema, uh, particularly yeah. cinema that had a musical angle. Yeah, I guess in some ways the culture that uh, that the, the Beats created, right? I mean, he fully embraced the hippie movement, which was viewed as this kind of uh, development or evolution of the Beats. And Kerouac is famously very dismissive of it because he felt that it lacked the kind of intellectual rigor or, or literary curiosity that marked uh, the movement that he and, and his compatriots created. But, uh, you know, on whole, I'd say Ginsburg probably had a better time with it. And uh, he, he certainly uh, lived into uh, both fame and infamy as a result. Mm. He's very savvy that way. Um, yeah. and, and, and again, fame makes me think of Byron, uh, who yeah. was always very conscious of his fame. I mean, I, I imagine if Byron had lived today and it, uh, there's those kind of th- any conversation that starts like that, if Shakespeare was alive today, they're they're stupid. I acknowledge that before I go any further. But if Byron was alive today, I'm yeah. sure he would have been 
very careful of his image, he would have been doing collaborations with Kurt Cobain or, you know, whoever whoever was the most modish. Actually, it'd be more like Bono, wouldn't it? Bono and Byron, I can see it now. Well, you think of, of Jim Morrison as being a rather Byronic figure in, in some ways. I mean, he he is someone who is, um, I would not classify him as a poet, although I know that I've had many students and, and Californians in the past insist that he is. There's a kind of template for what kind of poets filmmakers want to make films about. And it makes me wonder about our, our contemporary poets. I mean, I'm hard pressed to think of any contemporary poets we might make films about. I was just thinking that actually. I was yeah. thinking, who would you do one about now? I mean, who's the most famous poet in the world? Or Seamus Heaney, I guess. I was thinking, yeah. like, you couldn't really make a film about Heaney. You could maybe make one about, well, they did make one about Ted Hughes, didn't they? Sylvia. That's uh, true. Well, yeah. It's about, yeah. about Plath, but he's in it. But I mean, and, that's and, an incredibly boring film. Well, and, and Bukowski as well, I guess, would be the other one. But I think the the, the through line with all these poets is that, uh, you know, they had these kind of shocking, debauched lives on some style. I mean, I, I don't think Heaney had anything. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I can believe Heaney out of that. <laughs> yeah, I think I, he might have liked whiskey a little bit. But other than that, I think, uh, you know, he seemed by all accounts a, 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 a stagesis uh, individual. And, yeah. you know, you're looking for that. I mean, I think of... Um, I ill-advisedly went back and watched Mike Myers' So I Married an Axe Murderer, um, which I, I do not recommend. And I apologize in advance to our Scottish audience because there, there are so many uh, stereotypes that he throws out in that film. But he plays a 90s era beat poet who somehow makes a living living in San Francisco off of reciting terrible poems. Um, it is a comedy. Know, it is a, yeah, it is, it is definitely. And well, calling it a comedy is uh, uh, being generous in, in some ways the uh, his style of comedy has not aged well also oh dear <laughs> probably the best of them uh, and the most uncharacteristic them of these films is, is gothic which is this sort of 90 minute fever dream hmm. about what may or may not have gone on at um villa diodati uh, and I, this opens up for me um there's a sort of sideline when it comes to Byron. Byron books or, you know, Byron's appearances in graphic novels or, uh, you know, Byron films or TV. There's a sideline. You know, if you're going to do Byron, it's normally, you know, his life story. But there's also a whole swath of um, of, 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 of product, media, content, digital stuff about um, there's a whole swath of, of films and programs about Byron in a sort of supernatural angle, just because of his proximity to the genesis of, of Frankenstein. And that's what Gothic's about. It's about mm. being creative and the uh, calling up something that you, you can't control, which obviously has, you know, um, I guess that's what fame is as well. And that that has implications for the, the life of Byron and the life of Mary Shelley, who both um, suffered, I guess, from people's preconceptions of them. But there's a, there's there's all kinds of sort of, uh, um, sort of supernatural and weirdo kind of sort of fictions involving Byron. The latest one I watched was last year, and it was an episode of Doctor Who, which took place at Villa Diodati, and Cybermen turn up, and it's actually one of the worst things I've ever watched. It was a total pile of rubbish. If you know anything about Byron, if you know anything about the Beats, you know that the, the films about their lives are woefully inadequate when it comes to to getting the truth of the matter. How would you ever get the truth of the matter anyway? These people are dead; their lives are locked away in history. But you know, I, I was wondering if you know, uh, for example, the Kill Your Darlings. Are, that's kind of like almost like a sort of murder mystery trial film, isn't it? And and Howl as well. It's like a documentary. It's got different 
textures. It's 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 taking the poetry, but not doing a boring biopic version of it. What these films are always trying to do is to capture the feeling and the emotions of, of these movements or these individuals. And really the only way to do that is to read the work. Uh, the, the films, you know, it's always like, you've read the, the book, now see the movie, but the movie doesn't sell you anything. Um, Kill Your Darlings is, I mean, it's not even much of a murder mystery so much as it is like a, a procedural uh, going from A to B. And it's not a bad film, but I can't say that I would go back and watch it again. Same thing with Howl, you know, both of them are, what I would call as a teacher, like lazy day movies where, you know, it's the day before summer break and you as an English teacher might need to show a film to your students. You're like, oh, here's something that has some educational value and isn't Dead Poet Society. Um, you know, so <laughs> you slap it on and, and then you've got a, a bit of uh, educational content there. I think, you know, Kill Your Darlings, if anything, was perhaps, well, I was going to say more ambitious, but I think that's unfair because I think the way that Howl was filmed was actually exceedingly ambitious. And, and I would have gladly watched the many different versions of how it play out between the animation, the courtroom drama and the documentary aspect. Um, but Kill Your Darlings was trying to, uh, you know, it was trying to both show the beginning of the beat movement. You know, you, it, it hits, you know, forgive me, all the beats, you know, Kerouac meets, <laughs> Kerouac meeting Ginsburg on the stolen rowboat and Ginsburg reading the poem to him and Kerouac saying, you've got it, kid, you know, you're gonna make it happen and Kerouac and Carr trying to uh, enlist in the Merchant Marines. You've got Burroughs uh, appearing with a gas mask on in a tub. I think he's uh, inhaling nitrous oxide. And then he introduces the other beats to, uh, to speed, which helps their writing process. Um, so, you know, despite that small time span that Kill Your Darlings is covering, it does try to cover a substantial amount of territory. But at the end of it, it really seems to be largely focused on the relationship between Carr and Ginsburg. Um, and maybe it suggests that, that Carr really inspired Ginsburg on. My sense was that Carr was really using anyone he could um, for as long as he could and then moving on to someone else. So uh, I, I can't say any heroes really emerged from that film. goes to movies, I'm delighted to introduce our special guest star, Ruben Quesada. Hi, I'm Ruben Quesada. I'm the editor of Latinx Poetics, Essays on the Art of Poetry, and my poetry books are Revelations and Next Extinct Mammal. I currently teach poetry and writing for the UCLA Writers Program and as an associate teaching fellow at the Attic Institute. There are movies that I return to because of their story or style. Like poetry, movies are made from imagination and form. I'll give almost any film a chance, like the 2011 film The Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. When I first tried to watch it, I arrived late at the theater and had to sit in the front row. I left about a quarter of the way into the film. I got a migraine from sitting about five feet in front of a 40-foot screen. Admittedly, it's a film I've never finished, and a migraine I don't want to recall. It's a seemingly impossible task that Terence Malick has been practicing for decades in the same way poets compose their poems. A film critic at Rolling Stone described The Tree of Life as being shot with a poet's eye. 
filmmakers and poets alike want to express something about life. There's one filmmaker I will always watch, Pedro Almodovar, one of my favorites. He's received numerous awards, including two Academy Awards, five BAFTAs, and 32 Goyas. Over the past 40 years, Almodovar has established himself as an internationally recognized Spanish filmmaker. With camp and humor, he introduces audiences to a variety of Spanish people, their culture, and their identity. Almodovar's film, I'm So Excited, or Los Amantes Pasajeros, is absurd. Shortly after takeoff, the flight crew learns of a mechanical issue with the landing gear. As news of the problem makes its way to first-class passengers, the three male flight attendants create a distraction. They lip-sync and dance to the early 80s hit by the Pointer Sisters, I'm So Excited. We're introduced to each passenger in first class throughout the film, each with an unusual backstory. I won't spoil the rest. Poets, like filmmakers, introduce audiences to new stories, including people's history, culture, and language, and I'm here for it. To echo a poet I admire, to be haunted is to be aware of your history. I'd like to share a poem, and in my poem I mention two public figures who are preserved on film. I hope you enjoy it, and thank you for listening. 1985. I stand on our lawn. A girl passes like a vanishing shadow. I watch her wait at the corner crosswalk as birds dart into trees. My eyes blur. A car begins to slip across the horizon. Her body flails toward the curb. My mother appears in the crowd. We stand tightly tucked. It's Mary in a dress the color of asphalt. She is the color of skim milk. Months later, Mary's mother is found in the garage with the car running. Before we attend her funeral, the radio announces Rock Hudson was dead. There was no funeral, only a body the color of ash. In 1987, on broadcast television, I watch R. Bud Dwyer. He gives his life away. He is about to speak, live and direct, before a group of reporters. But they are tired of this story. Why is this news? This will hurt someone, says a voice, as thick as skin. Off-screen, cameras scream. He holds a revolver the size of his head. His hand shakes like a copperhead colt until the Holy Spirit finally rattles out of his head. We hope you've enjoyed the first season of Poetry Goes to the Movies. We'd particularly like to thank our guest poets, Chad Bennett, Diana Marie Delgado, Emma Hine, Joy Priest, Ruben Quesada, and Gerda Stevenson for sharing their thoughts and work with us. And we'd like to thank you, dear listener, for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, tell us about it, won't you? And if you feel inclined to spread the word far and wide via social media or your non-digitized social networks, we'd sure appreciate it.